Hello and welcome to Skynet Today's Let's Talk AI podcast, where you can hear from AI researchers about what's going on with AI. We release weekly AI news coverage and also interviews with people in AI. I'm your host, Andrei Karankov. In this interview episode, we'll get to hear from Jordan Herod. In this special interview episode, we'll get to hear from Jordan Herod. Jordan Herod is a PhD candidate in medical engineering and medical physics at the Harvard MIT Health Sciences and Technology program. Her research focuses on using neuromodulation to understand pain and consciousness and using neurotechnology and machine learning to develop new tools for brain stimulation. She is also a significant communicator and educator focused on AI, with her YouTube channel having many videos on how we interact with artificial intelligence in our daily lives and explainers about how AI works and its applications. And she is also the Chief Operating Officer of the MIT Science Policy Review, a peer-reviewed science policy journal. Thank you so much, uh, Jordan, for joining us for this episode. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. All righty, let's uh, dive into the interviews. So first, uh, I was thinking we can go over your research, which uh, is quite interesting. So I find many academics, including myself, have an interesting journey that leads them toward pursuing a PhD. I saw on your CV, uh, you started with research quite early in your undergraduate studies. So can you give us uh, a story on how you want, wound up deciding to do a PhD and, and focus on research? Yeah, so I actually got started in research in high school. I went to a school where we had this program at the local university where you could work in a lab for the summer and actually started in environmental engineering. Um, it was definitely fun, but I was more medically inclined. I've always been interested in medicine. And so I ended up getting to work for call it eight months in a biomaterials and interface tissue engineering lab at Columbia. Um, and that was probably my first serious foray into research. I still remember talking to Dr. Liu who runs that lab. Um, and her asking if I was interested in doing research and telling her that I was not interested in doing research. I was interested in doing experiments because I thought that Ooh. research was when you like Google stuff and then you write a paper <laughs> on it. <laughs> uh-huh. So she, she, out of the goodness of her heart, took me on anyway. Um, and yeah, I, I went from that lab to um, an orthopedic tissue engineering lab at Cornell where I did my undergrad. And spent, I guess, three and a half years there. Um, I was working on engineering the meniscus, um, tissue engineering for the meniscus, which is a structure in your knee. Um, And came in thinking that I was going to do more cell work and then very quickly realized that I don't actually like working with cells at all and prefer to do a lot of data analysis. So I got to work with a lot of medical imaging. I spent a summer at Novartis because I thought I might go into pharma. And after that summer, I kind of realized that research was more my speed, mostly because I like having that like intellectual ownership over the entire project from kind of start to finish versus applying a specific skill set to a bunch of different projects. And then I went to Stanford, which is when I kind of got my first intro into machine learning. Um, I was working on MRI construction using machine learning, so using generative networks and had a good time, but wasn't sure if machine learning, especially on the theory side, was going to be for me. Um, but when I was applying to grad school, I was essentially looking for places where I could do, you know, something that connected electrical engineering, computer science to medicine. Um, and so I think research and probably a PhD was always where I was headed. I think I tried out a bunch of different things, especially on the research side to kind of figure out where in research I wanted to be and see whether I was more interested in kind of trending into academia versus trending in industry. Um, but yeah, that's essentially how I ended up deciding to do a PhD. I don't know if there was ever a point where I explicitly decided to do it, but especially once I got into research and realized that because biomedical engineering is such a broad field, you don't necessarily get a lot of experience in a particular depth of one area. The PhD kind of made sense. 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, I always find it uh, for me as well. Starting out early is very good for research because you get a taste and you can decide, um, you know, whether grad school is right for you, and you can explore and, and find what you like. So yeah, given now you're doing your PhD, I think you're a couple of years in. Could you give us a high level overview of what your research is about? Uh, I, I could sort of get the machine learning part, but the uh, medicine part, not, not at all. Yeah, so I'm co-advised between two labs. Um, and one of my labs, Ed Boyden's lab, is interested in developing methods related to neuroscience research. Um, and my other lab, the Neuroscience Statistic Research Lab, is more interested in anesthesia and the mechanisms that underlie anesthesia um, and using statistical methods and machine learning to analyze and control um, anesthetic regulation in the clinic. So I'm interested essentially in developing neuromodulation tools and controlling them using machine learning or other statistical methods um, that can help us better understand how anesthesia works and ideally replicate some of its effects in the brain. Um, and as uh, well as <laughs> what is uh, neuromodulation exactly? Oh, so it can be, it's, it's anything that's kind of altering neural activity. Um, uh, so that can be like deep brain stimulation with electrodes. It can also be like transcranial electrical stimulation, things like tax and TDCS and um, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which are commonly used in cases of like treatment resistant depression. So anything up in that alley. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I'm essentially interested in on the more basic science side, um, looking at how different brain structures contribute to the effects that we see of anesthetic drugs, um, and then also developing new neuromodulation tools that we can use to both understand things like anesthesia, but also treat other psychiatric conditions that people currently deal with. So is that where the neurotechnology side comes in? Yeah. I see. Great. Uh, and I guess, yeah, I'm curious, um, personally, I'm, I'm you know, fairly aware of how AI research goes, but uh, in this kind of intersection of fields, uh, that is uh, less uh, something I know. So, you know, how roughly do you go about your research? What is sort of a timeline of a typical project? Uh, is it collaborative? Uh, various things like that. Yeah. So it often depends on which parts of the research I'm working on. So a lot of my work involves animals, um, animal surgeries, animal, animal behavior. And those studies are collaborative in the sense that, you know, I didn't come into grad school having worked on animals or in neuroscience. So I've had to learn a lot from people in my labs. Um, but first you have to get, you know, protocols approved by whatever institutional review board you have so that you can make sure that you're doing things in a safe way and make sure that you're not unnecessarily hurting your animals. Um, then you have to actually get animals, which is currently challenging because COVID supply chain stuff. Um, and then depending on what you're doing, if you're doing behavior work, you may have to like train an animal to complete a task, which can take anywhere from, a couple weeks to like a couple months, um, depending on what the task is and how much your animals are cooperating with you. Um, and then doing surgeries and planting, you know, electrodes to stimulate things. Um, and then doing like the actual experimental work that you're trying to do. So on the animal side, things take, depending on how fast you can get like approvals for stuff, um, and how much time you can kind of spend physically in lab things, I would say usually take on the order of a couple months. Um, on the more devices and kind of computational modeling side, that's usually essentially based on how much time I spend on it is, is the easy answer. Um, it's something that can take a couple weeks for me to develop models to, you know, optimize different stimulation paradigms. Um, or it can take a couple months for me to take MRI data and like segment it down to something that I can use for the modeling itself. So it varies a lot. Um, I would say my work is fairly collaborative, especially since it's run between two different labs. Um, so I work with people from both sides. Um, but what I do on a day-to-day -day basis, especially in like the last 15 months when we've all been trapped at home has been less collaborative just because, COVID regulations kind of force that. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. That 
it's interesting. Personally, with COVID, you know, in robotics, we couldn't go into the lab to work with robots. And uh, with many other scientific fields, you actually need to come into the lab much more, which it sounds like you also do that for surgery. So interesting how COVID has impacted science for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, when it comes to being trained on new methods, like we weren't allowed to have more than one person in the room where we do animal work until like a week or two ago. Um, so if you need someone to train you on how to do a surgery, you can't really do that over zoom. So it definitely put a hold up on some stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like certainly working with real brains as opposed to fake brains involves a lot more uh, with AI or at least machine learning, you know, the publication cycle is like you try to get a couple papers per year, which I imagine is hard in your field. Or yeah, no, doing. I don't. I don't. We don't aim for that. As a yeah. I think the lab aims for like, you know, several papers a year. Um, us as individuals aim to get through the animal experiments so that we can actually start looking at the data. Right. And then uh, you mentioned having some electrical engineering aside, how low level does it get? Do you develop devices or more so kind of, I guess, uh, signals? Stuff like that? So right now, a lot of what I'm doing is more modeling based, um, finite element modeling. And in theory, in the future, we'll get fairly low level, like circuit development level. Um, we'll, we'll see what the system that I'm currently working on ends up looking like, which I can't talk about because it's confidential. I'm Um, sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But ideally we'll be able to take existing stuff and kind of repackage it so that we don't have to build everything back from scratch, but it wouldn't be the first time that um, my lab has developed these systems from scratch and we do actually have collaborators that help us do that. So when we develop the, um, temporal interference stimulation system, which is a non-invasive neuromodulation system in 2017. That was something that was pretty much built from scratch. Um, and we worked with, uh, we worked with a researcher in the electrical engineering department to actually develop the device itself. So ideally I would not have to do everything from complete scratch or I would have some help. Exciting. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's interesting. It sounds like your work is much more interdisciplinary, whereas a lot of people in CS kind of stick to their little niche, like computer science, LP, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. My work definitely spans a bunch of different stuff, which is what I wanted going into grad school. So I'm happy with it. Yeah. Uh, sounds great. And, uh, yeah, I'm curious sort of why do you find this work, these topics inspirational or yeah. What do you find really exciting about I think coming into grad school, especially working on orthopedic tissue engineering and working more with cells as an undergrad, I was interested in researching and developing technologies that could be translated out to the clinic relatively quickly, as opposed to more basic science research or research that has clinical applications, but probably won't make it out to people for, you know, 10 plus years. Um, so that was what kind of drew me to EECS for medicine broadly and, you know, non-invasive, um, neuromodulation systems. And past that, I came into grad school looking more for, you know, mentorship fit and lab culture fit than necessarily any particular project. So that was the thing that I think got me to the people that I currently work with more than, you know, any specific work that was going on in the lab. I talked to tons of interesting people at Harvard and MIT who are all doing super interesting work. So I think there were plenty of projects that could have ended up, you know, scratching the same itch that this does. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. I think this is sort of a a thing you realize as a researcher that uh, culture fit, you know, advisor fit is very crucial for a PhD. So that, that sounds like a smart approach. Um, yeah, so we, we kind of covered the high level, uh, processes and methods. And next I'm curious if you could just walk us through a single paper or project of yours, uh, maybe <laughs> one that is maybe more approachable. Uh, one talk I saw of yours was applications of machine learning for fronts, 
mutinous treatment to heal a depressed brain. Uh, so I found that interesting personally. Oh yeah, that um, that was I guess a presentation that I gave at a conference um, last year, two years ago. Time is weird, and so that that whole conference was focused on essentially looking at the intersection of um, machine learning and clinical medicine as it relates to like psychiatry. Um, and so I was interested because I work on transcutaneous, um, well, transcranial, which also means transcutaneous through the skin um, neuromodulation. I was interested in looking at ways where machine learning might help us use things like TMS um, or tax to treat things like treatment resistant depression better than we currently do. Um, so that was kind of an exploratory presentation looking through current research on using machine learning systems to optimize, um, different neural circuit targeting and a lot of like brain connectome research. So looking at how, um, different structures are connected in circuits that you can essentially target from different regions and have similar effects. Um, yeah, I, I think it was an interesting presentation because A, it turns out that a lot of, I guess, what I end up talking about, and we haven't gotten to this, but the stuff that I end up talking about on my channel when it comes to like neural networks and, you know, reinforcement learning and stuff like that, um, isn't really what you see when it comes to applying machine learning to, you know, optimizing targets for TMS. Um, a lot more of it is the actual optimization part and whether or not we can pull interesting optimization methods um, from machine learning research towards having a better idea of whether or not our treatments are actually working and then figuring out kind of at a patient level as opposed to at a population level where we should be stimulating and what the best treatment paradigm is for people. Um, so interestingly, there isn't a ton of, I guess, focused research on translating those two things, or at least there wasn't at the time when I was doing that presentation. Um, and so it's something that I definitely think about when it comes to including machine learning in my work in designing new systems, because I don't know, I just think it would be a better way of doing it than what we do now, which is often like, we know that, you know, this landmark on your scalp is supposed to be in this general area. And then like one centimeter from that is where we're going to stimulate versus having an actual MRI scans of people's brains or even fMRI scans where you can see brain activity and using that as a way of better targeting based on the brain activity, which is the thing that you're trying to control anyway. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what that presentation was about broadly. We're actually working on a review paper that will hopefully be submitted by the end of the month um, that highlights the places where we see machine learning and kind of the, the clinical pipeline um, and includes some discussion on the stuff that I covered in this paper as it relates to like precision medicine. So should be exciting. Cool. Yeah. Uh, quite interesting. Um, and I guess I, I sidetracked a bit from asking about a particular project you had, but that is actually a good um segue, uh, I guess, for our podcast, it would be a little more interesting to dive more into how you use machine learning in your work. Uh, and yeah, I'm curious as far as processes, uh, do you develop kind of novel models or do you mainly apply it in novel ways? And what is one example where you... Yeah, so I mostly work on the applied side for my work. Um, most of my lab, I would say when it comes to machine learning, works on the applied side. We don't generally dabble in theory, although we do have people who do like pure stats. So we do have some theorists. Um, within my work, it tends to come into play in things like data analysis. Um, so when we're trying to analyze behavioral data from our animals, it can be useful. There's actually a lot of pre-built stuff that it can be useful for in terms of like you know, tracking different behaviors, um, in video analysis of different experiments. Um, and then within my more modeling side of things, it can be useful for, or I'm currently using, um, more of the optimization side of machine learning to look at how we can better design existing neuromodulation systems. Um, so the temporal interference system is a great example of this, where you're placing these two pairs of electrodes on someone's head. Um, and so you could, you know, brute force search 
the best combination of electrode pairs and positionings to figure out if you can hit a particular target, but there are better optimization tools out there yeah. to do that. <laughs> it classic AI, but yeah. we have developed better tools since then. Um, so I, I apply a lot of those methods towards developing, you know, new systems and figuring out how well they compare to the stuff that we've developed in the past. Got it. And uh, it sounds like you do some optimization work. Um, do you also apply some of these fancy or maybe not so fancy, but, you know, recent machine learning models? I know it's quite popular for MRIs. There's pre-DCNNs, pre-CNNs. So. Yeah, stuff like UNET. Um, less so lately, I might... So with stuff like the um, segmenting brain MRIs to create new models, I could certainly see applications of especially stuff like UNET um, to do segmentation faster. There's a lot of different existing packages that also do that. So I would have to compare to see which ones are actually the best at doing it based on, there's a lot of different ways you can optimize that kind of stuff. Um, whether or not you want it to be done quickly versus like high levels of detail, stuff like that. Um, yeah, I think right now that's mostly how I'm applying more current models. Um, but a lot of the stuff that I do ends up being on the optimization side lately. When I came into the lab originally, I was actually looking at machine learning for sleep staging. Um, so being able to create models that could identify based on EEG data, which records electrical activity from the brain, um, what stage of sleep someone was in, in particular for us, what stage of sleep our animals were in. Because when you look at neural activity in rodents, you often have local sleep. So signatures in the neural activity of local sleep when the animal might be awake or in like a low activity state, but they're not actually asleep. Um, and so it can be actually be a little bit harder to, to analyze that kind of data versus humans where the signals are a lot bigger. <laughs> um, so I was doing that for a while um, and then ended up transitioning more into what I work on now. Um, but I could certainly see that coming back, especially as we look at like clinical translation of new systems and how do you monitor someone's current like depth of anesthesia and stuff like that. So. Got it. And then, yeah, actually speaking of what you're doing now, at least for stuff that isn't secret, uh, yeah, could you describe what is your current focus? Yeah. yeah so right now I am interested in doing, I guess, optogenetics experiments. Um, so using different light-based tools to activate certain specific cell types in the brain. Um, this is all in animals. So most of my work for now is in animals, hopefully in the future, be able to translate it to humans, but we shall see. Um, and so we're interested in essentially stimulating different regions of the brain and seeing how behaviors related to the effects that we see of anesthetic drugs change. Um, on top of that is the modeling stuff that I'm doing where we're looking at for temporal interference, how you can place electrodes in a way that allow you to do deep brain stimulation using that system. Um, and then essentially taking the design of temporal interference and refashioning it towards designing better systems for both neuromodulation, but also for, you know, stimulating other things or leveraging other biophysics towards brain stimulation. Um, and I think that that's all that I can say without breaking any rules or making either of <laughs> my advisors mad. <laughs> right. Yeah. You don't want to give away too much. Um, yeah. So that's, that's quite cool. And uh, yeah, hearing about these neural stimulation things and uh, yeah. And, and with your current focus, I guess my last question with regards to research is I'm curious, how would you describe the state of your field as far as like how much do we know versus don't know or how much can we do versus can't do? How far are you from the dream? What you can do with these techniques? Yeah. I mean, I think anesthesia is interesting on a lot of levels in particular because mechanistically we don't totally necessarily understand how it works. Um, and also because it's a cocktail of a bunch of different drugs that we have to give people so that, you know, you take one drug that lowers your blood pressure and then we have to give you another drug to like counterbalance that. Um, 
So I think that one of the grants actually that my lab has essentially focuses on the idea that a lot of our work on anesthesia has focused on, you know, understanding how the drugs themselves work, but not understanding how different parts of the brain contribute to things like consciousness and pain. Um, and so my project is essentially one piece of getting a better understanding of that so that we can use that more basic science understanding to develop these like better anesthetics, better general anesthesia cocktails, better, you know, neuromodulation tools, better treatment plans for people who have disorders that are related to consciousness, but aren't necessarily related to like anesthesia specifically. So if you look at things like chronic pain, um, that's something where if we had a better understanding of pain pathways and how to modulate pain in the brain, we could probably develop systems that allowed us to minimize chronic pain. Um, so that's definitely, I mean, hopefully where I see this kind of work going in the future. And I think it'll be hopefully something that we can, something that will be very interesting for the field, but also something that we can kind of readily translate to the clinic and like help people in real time. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, that's really interesting. Fantastic. Um, Cool. Yeah. So I've definitely learned a lot discussing your research. Uh, and I think that's a good point to transition to talking about your communication and education efforts with respect to AI, which uh, perhaps is how many of our listeners uh, already know you. So, um, yeah, you've been doing that for several years now. And uh, to start with, maybe we could begin similarly to research with you telling us uh, how you chose to go down that path and what inspired you to start it. Yeah, so I I don't want to say I've always been interested in education. My mom was an English teacher, so I think education has always been a big part of my life growing up. I went to a program that MIT runs called Splash in high school where people can teach courses on like whatever they want. I took a class on like memes. So it was a lot of fun to learn about kind of quirky and weird things that you wouldn't come across in like your normal college courses. And then ended up teaching a class in college for four years at Splash at Cornell on essentially how to engineer superpowers using biomedical engineering. So that's how I got into science communication, science education. And as I was starting to think about grad school, starting to think about what kind of research I was interested in going to Stanford and working in machine learning. I became really interested in machine learning and AI, um, both from an academic perspective, but also kind of from a like popular science perspective and was interested in doing more science communication work, but wasn't necessarily interested in doing more classroom work. Um, so I actually originally switched to writing um, and I was writing for places like massive science where I'm now a common, uh, mm where I'm now a columnist. Um, but I was also interested in looking at other forms of media. And I feel like, you know, Crash Course got like most of us through some amount of college. So <laughs> I, I figured that YouTube would be a good place to start talking about these things and learning more about these things and having interesting conversations about emerging tech, especially AI. Um, so that's how I ended up starting on YouTube. It started as a hobby. It's now my second job, which has its pros and cons. Um, but it's, it's something that I think I got into because especially as someone who TA'd as an undergrad, I've just always found that the best way to learn something is to like have to teach it. Um, and so it gives me a way to keep learning about this field that I find to be super interesting on a lot of levels. Um, even when it's not directly related to my research and also share interesting and weird things that I come across in the field with other people who might also be interested in it, but don't want to have to read all the papers. Cool. Yeah. Uh, I can definitely relate. And after undergrad, I learned machine learning, but I didn't really get what deep learning was about. So, uh, since I had a bit of free time working and not doing school, I, I wrote up a big blog post and in that way, self-educated. So I can definitely see that. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, actually, so you, you, uh, mentioned you taught in undergrad and, and that uh, helped you at least get into communication. So I'm curious, uh, did you enjoy like giving talks, generally having a public voice before doing YouTube? Uh, yeah. I guess yes and no. I think 
ironically, a lot of education YouTubers are introverts. And I would definitely say that I tend to be an introvert. Um, I think that public speaking is always something that I was kind of uncomfortable with. But making content for social media and YouTube is something that I definitely enjoyed growing up is something that I've always kind of enjoyed the creative process of doing so. Um, but at the same time, like when I gave my Ted talk like two years ago, that was easily one of the more like terrifying experiences because like public speaking makes me super nervous. <laughs> so I think I, I enjoy having a public voice, but I enjoy having it in that more, you know, social media creative, but also like edited way where I can create something, look at it and then be like, I'd like to tweak this. And I want this to look like this versus going up on a stage and kind of having one shot at doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, and yeah, speaking of your creative process, uh, what's that like in terms of research, writing, recording, editing? Yeah. How does that go? Yeah. I think that it often depends on the video. So project-based videos, are usually things that span, you know, a couple weeks of me tinkering with the project before I actually start figuring out what the video is necessarily going to be about. So I might come in thinking, I want to do something where I can, you know, show people how to implement federated learning in Google Collab or something like that. Um, and usually what has to happen first is I actually need to make sure that I can do that <laughs> so that I can design this thing and then talk about it. Um, so there's often a lot of projects that are kind of up in the air where I'm just tinkering with things. And then once I get to a point where I'm like, okay, I can now take this and like make a video about it. Um, I'll write up a script. My videos are typically either fully scripted or very detailed outlined. Um, I don't do the bullet point thing because usually there's too many technical points that I end up forgetting. So it's a lot easier to just write everything out beforehand. And it also helps me write everything out, take, you know, a day or so from it and then go back and figure out, does this actually make sense as there, you know, something I wanted to hit on that I forgot about or something that I didn't realize that I should include. Um, is this the order that I want to talk about this in and stuff like that. And from there, filming takes like no more than 45 minutes. My videos are usually 10 to 12 minutes long. So it's usually a pretty short process. Um, and then editing takes, I would say an hour and a half to three hours. It usually depends on if it's more of a, a research focused video where I'm just talking and I can shoot in one take then I would say probably an hour and a half because I just have to cut down the footage and then add in any B-roll that I need to add in. Um, if it's a more project focused video, it probably takes a little longer just because I have to like create kind of the storyline of like which clips are going where and is, you know, do I need to speed up X thing to do a time lapse? Do I need to like add graphics, stuff like that? Um, so yeah, anywhere from like one and a half to three hours taking well, making a thumbnail, which includes taking photos for the thumbnail, um, takes probably about an hour. It used to take like 10 minutes, but I am repped by an agency with a bunch of other YouTubers who are all like aghast when I told them that I only took five, 10 minutes to make a <laughs> thumbnail. So I've been shamed into actually taking more time into that. Um, and yeah, then, you know, you upload and things go up. Um, for non project videos, things that are more either based on the literature or based on something that's currently happening, I would say I probably spend anywhere from a couple days to a week researching, um, probably around well, researching and writing. So probably around 10 to 15 hours total for a video on average. I think it often depends on how familiar I am with the topic going in. So for stuff that I've already like read all of the papers and I'm just doing a sanity check of the literature to make sure that I'm covering everything. It'll take a couple days. Um, when I was doing like quantum machine learning, that took like two weeks because I didn't take like quantum in undergrad. <laughs> so I had to go learn that. Um, so yeah, that's, that's usually how long it takes. The, the research and kind of planning part is definitely the part that takes the longest amount of time. Um, and then because most of my videos are sponsored, I also have to keep up with like sending previews and, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Got it. Yeah. It's, 
maybe people aren't aware, you know, it's the whole process. Uh, and uh, in terms of a process, personally, I, I find I really enjoy editing. So I wonder what is your favorite part or is there a favorite Ooh. part? I feel like my favorite part is probably the like research and scripting slash storytelling process. I like the process of conceptualizing a video and then figuring out kind of what it's going to look like. Editing is definitely my least favorite. Part. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I've come to enjoy it a little bit more as I've like learned to be both like faster and better at it. But especially the rough edit is just like tedious and not the most fun. I think once it's cut down to at least in raw form, what it's going to look like, then you get to like have a little more fun with it. But the process of going from like 40 minutes of footage to like 10 minutes of footage is not, not the most fun. Yeah. Yeah. But that makes sense. Maybe I enjoy it more because I, I started out in photography. Um, yeah. And then, uh, Maybe next, I'm curious, you now have a couple of years there, so you've, you've uh, covered a lot of topics and uh, you're quite prolific, which is cool. You're, you're pretty consistent, which I have not been with various <laughs> efforts. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm curious in your backlog, do you have any kind of favorite videos that you can think of? Yeah, I think that, I mean, a recent video that comes to mind was a video that I kind of ended up doing for fun. So there's this website called Pim Eyes where you can do like a reverse facial recognition image search on, according to the terms of service, only pictures of yourself, but like, okay, sure. Um, <laughs> and so I did a video exploring that and it was just a fun video to make um, to, to see what came up as someone who's like very on the internet. I kind of went into it thinking that like most of these are probably things that I've put on the internet, but there were also some things that I did not put on the internet. And there was one picture that I had no idea had been taken. Um, so that was enlightening. And I think it's also, it, it was more of a fun video versus the like research heavy technical videos that I normally do, which can be also fun to make, but aren't always as fun as just like screwing around on on the internet with like a machine learning system and seeing what happens. Um, I think other videos that I've done that I enjoyed, let's see, I did oh, a video on go explore earlier this year. Um, that was a lot of fun just to like read about that and understand that more. I did a video on well, so I've done a couple videos on deep fakes. I did a video for Tom Scott's channel where I made a deep fake of him. That was a lot of fun. Um, and also I like couldn't look at his face for like a month after that because I spent about <laughs> two months staring at it. So All right. yeah, that, that was a good time. Um, and then, oh, the, I think this was actually the first video that I posted um, after joining my agency. There was, I think, a nature either BME or nature medicine paper, like in 2019 or something, um, that had a smart toilet that like used butt recognition to identify who was using it. That was a lot of fun. That was hilarious to make. So those are probably the, the big ones that come to mind. Got it. Yeah. Some of the more fun, less serious stuff, uh, makes sense. Uh, and then, yeah, maybe you will go explore. You got to see a lot of Atari games is, uh, yeah, pretty fun. And uh, similar to that, you already mentioned the quantum ML one, but what are some other videos where doing research, you learned a lot and yeah, I got that aspect out of it. Yeah, I think certainly some of my early videos where I was doing a little more research on the topics that I was covering to kind of get a better sense of them. Um, so I did a self-driving car video probably two or three years ago now that looked less at the kind of computer vision side of autonomous driving and more at like the infrastructural side of it. And that was really interesting to learn about. Um, along the same time, actually, I think a couple weeks before that video, I did a video on the ongoing debate around whether or not like AI systems could be listed as like inventors on patents and ended up diving way too deep into a rabbit hole around like patent and trademark law. Um, and actually called up one of my friends who's a law student to 
pick his brain about it because I was sitting there like, this doesn't make any sense. What's a person legally? Um, (laughs) so that was definitely fun. Um, and was something that I learned just a ton about, you know, the legal system, which is something that I definitely wouldn't normally come across. Um, more recently, I would say, let's see, what have I done recently? Um, I did a video. Oh, actually I did a video on, um, using the TensorFlow for M1 Max. And that was just a learning experience in like using something that's very much in beta (laughs) (laughs) and like figuring out how to install it in the first place was like a whole, a whole thing. Um, so I think that was definitely something that I learned a lot from, um, from a more practical perspective. And that was, yeah, definitely fun. Um, and then I think the, the last one that comes to mind is probably the DeepMind AlphaFold video that I did, um, just because that was an approach to machine learning that I wasn't very familiar with. And so it was just cool to, to learn more about um, like a model architecture that I just hadn't really read much about. So yeah, I think those, those were probably the ones where I learned some of the most. And then obviously also the quantum one, which I, I want to do more quantum content. I just like need to get a textbook <laughs> and like sit down and like learn quantum mechanics and quantum physics before I can really start talking about it more on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. With quantum stuff, reading those papers, uh, it, to me would be, you know, half gibberish. It's crazy. And then even AlphaFold was, yeah, pretty hard to digest. It was, you know, pretty interesting. That's cool. I imagine also with a project based stuff you learn a lot of these like toolkits stuff yeah Yeah. the the project-based stuff is often i guess good in the sense of just like more practical programming practice that wasn't supposed to be alliteration um (laughs) (laughs) just yeah having more hands-on experience designing and then debugging different systems that I don't normally deal with on the research end of things. Um, so I've definitely gotten a lot more. Yeah. I've learned a lot practically from that. Great. And then, um, you mentioned, uh, before that now this is your second job and, uh, you know, doing these episodes, I think you're roughly weekly or usually weekly. Uh, you know, that's not easy, uh, especially, you know, while being a grad student, uh, managing projects is, is pretty, pretty crazy because you're also your own manager. You're kind of your own manager and do jobs. So, yeah, uh, you, I think you made a video about this, but maybe we can go. How do you manage to do both? And yeah. 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 How do you do it? Yeah. I think that. On the YouTube side, having an agency to manage like sponsor relationships is definitely a lifesaver because I both don't have time for that and also just don't have the expertise to like do contract negotiation. Um, so it's it's definitely great to have them handling a lot of the kind of business side of running a channel. Um, outside of that, I think it helps that I'm kind of always on the lookout, I guess, for interesting topics that I can kind of keep in the back of my mind. And at the end of the day, reading this stuff is often kind of fun for me. Like it's interesting. It's something that I enjoy doing. So it doesn't feel like work a lot of the time. It's usually when I get into like editing that I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) Let me like sit down and do this. Um, In terms of balancing the two in general, for me, I would say like I keep nine to five to PhD stuff and then tend to do YouTube stuff after hours. Um, the only thing that doesn't necessarily fall into that is filming just because I find that first thing in the morning post taking ADHD meds is the best time to film. I'm like awake, alert, enthusiastic. I have energy. Um, but otherwise I tend to keep research stuff during the day, especially if I'm doing animal work. Um, it's not like I can like come in in the middle of the night to do animal work. We're not like allowed to do that. So coming home and then, you know, whether it's reading through some papers or starting to kind of outline and brainstorm what a script might look like or filming a video or editing a video or planning out what the next several weeks of videos is going to look like and maybe doing some brainstorming on video 
ideas that I haven't really pursued yet, um, is, is usually kind of how those two things get balanced in terms of like specifics. I mean, my life is in Google calendar. If it's not in my Google calendar, it's probably not going to happen. (laughs) Um, I use, uh, to do, which is, uh, like to do list tracking systems that I can keep track of all the things that I need to get done in like a week. Um, and then I also use notion to track my content calendar for YouTube, um, Instagram, TikTok. not so much Twitter. Cause Twitter is usually just like whatever I felt like tweeting that minute. Um, and Instagram and yeah, that's, I, I basically check all of those things on like a essentially daily basis to make sure that I'm not behind on anything and get a sense of like what the next week is going to look like. And then I keep a lab notebook digitally um, on my computer in OneNote. So I can also keep track of everything that's going on over there. Got it. Uh, I'm impressed or, or, you know, find it pretty inspirational that you do keep to a nine to five of research because uh, many grad students maybe are less disciplined about uh, separating life and work. You yeah, know, I, think, I, uh, I think I came into grad school, A, looking for advisors who like did not expect you to work outside of nine to five. Um, and B, knowing that like I, I wanted to have that downtime where I could kind of like leave work and obviously in the last year working from home, the dynamics of that have kind of changed, but working, keeping regular working hours, I think has been both good in terms of, you know, minimizing burnout. Um, but also, you know, making sure that I'm, I'm using my time effectively while I am in lab so that I'm not like spending 12 hours in lab and only really working for like four. Yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely a good strategy. And uh, I can I can also relate in a sense, you know, doing this podcast, doing kind of today, it it is kind of refreshing to have uh, this other, you know, almost hobby in addition to research. Uh, you know, you it is kind of a creative outlet that's very different from research. Uh, but uh, yeah, having like a second thing to do regularly is somehow actually quite healthy, at least I find. And it sounds like you also have that. Yeah, definitely. I think when you are like contractually obligated to post weekly, the dynamics of that change a little bit. Um, but it's definitely nice to, to have something that is like a measure of like progress and success and like, yeah, doing things that you can kind of look at and see like, yeah, I got this done. And that was cool. Even if like my experiments this week, like totally bombed because <laughs> sometimes <laughs> that happens. So having other things to like judge your worth on essentially. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then, um, finishing off, um, I guess, aside from research, aside from your efforts, um, on education, we can touch a little bit, you know, not delve too much, but I guess in your kind of uh, personal life, what are some hobbies and, and habits outside of work that you like to keep to and, you know, also enrich your life? Yeah. So I think my big thing is probably like fitness broadly. So I grew up playing like every individual sport there is. I've competed in figure skating. I was a competitive fencer. I played tennis. I played golf. I swam. I did taekwondo. Um, when I got into undergrad, I got into weightlifting and then into CrossFit. Um, and now I do kind of a combination of weightlifting and like Peloton. So that's something that I love doing. Um, I would like to get back into playing things like tennis and doing things like fencing, um, as things start opening back up so that I can do it more like socially. Um, but that's definitely one of the big things for me. I just, I like being active. I think, um, both it's fun, but also when your job is like thinking all the time, it's nice to have a break. That's like requires me not to think at all, but just requires me to focus on like, you know, squatting, however much weight. (laughs) Um, I I think it's very good for my mental health, especially in grad school. Um, outside of that reading, I'm like a huge sci-fi and fantasy nerd. (laughs) Um, So I love to read books. 
Any favorites <laughs> from those genres? So, uh, let's see. For fantasy, my favorite author is probably V.E. Schwab. She did um, A Darker Shade of Magic and the Villain series. And I love all those books. Um, they're so good. From the... I don't know if I guess you'd call it... Well, I guess on the science fiction side, the Murderbot Diaries are great. Um, mm. I think... What was the other book that just came to mind? Um, oh, the fifth season was the the book that just came to mind. I don't know if that falls into like science fiction versus fantasy. I think I would kind of call it both. Um, but that's another book that I really like. So yeah, those I love. I've been getting back into like fiction and creative writing because I used to be into that in high school and college. Um, and then had to start writing papers and didn't want to keep writing other things when I was doing that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I've, I've been trying to get back into that lately and I've been having some fun with that too. Great. Yeah. And yeah, with regards to fitness, I think that's true for a lot of people. You know, you just get into the moment, you can forget other stuff and that's obviously very healthy. So that's cool. Okay, great. So we covered, uh, I guess, your, your two jobs, a little bit outside of that. Um, is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners? Uh, if nothing else, then maybe you can tell them uh, how to find your uh, your videos and any social media stuff. Yeah, I don't know if there's anything else that I want to say. Um, you can find me on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all at Jordan B. Harrod. YouTube is Jordan Harrod. If you Google my name, it will show up. <laughs> I try to keep everything consistent across platforms. Um, and then I also have a Substack newsletter that I send out monthly. That's basically an overview of things that may have been happening in my life and interesting things that I'm reading or events that I'm going to or job opportunities for people who are looking um, that I think that people who are interested in following me on other platforms might also be interested in. All right. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I think I've subscribed to a few of those. So uh, I'm already a fan and I think, yeah, definitely our listeners can check it out if you're interested in AI, which hopefully you are given this podcast. So with that, I guess we will close out. Uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And let's do our usual outro. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk AI. You can find articles on similar topics to today's and subscribe to our weekly newsletter that has AI news at skyatoday.com. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating if you like the show. Be sure to tune in to our future episodes.